The Beatles revolutionized music after launching the British invasion of 1964. Of course, it wasn't the first time that the British had intruded upon American soil. My own country still looks to its American Revolution as the starting point for our society's core values. That revolution brought forth a world power that surpassed its colonial roots to such an extent that it was able to lead the rebuilding effort after the destruction wrought upon European society in the aftermath of World War II. It was here that the U.S. sought to revolutionize the world, bringing about the new liberal order that safeguards the West's security and economic well-being. But the liberal order isn't entirely new. The French Revolution, which followed the American insurrection of 1776, sought to establish an entirely new society founded in enlightened liberal ideas. It sought to usher in a new world, one filled with ideas of liberty and equality, as well as a calendar that had nine working days during the ten-day week. Okay, perhaps they didn't quite have a perfect plan, but neither did the Beatles when they embarked on an American tour designed to make a name for themselves. Four years later, they issued the song Revolution One, detailing their desire to change the world. But for doubters that say they've got a real solution, John Lennon wrote that we'd all love to see the plan. The French Revolution ended the monarchy, ushered in a wave of populist reforms, as well as a murderous regime that brought terror into the democratic lexicon before extinguishing beneath the rise of a new imperial dictatorship. It was a revolution without a plan. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the first in a series of five episodes regarding the French Revolution. Episode number one, Causes of the Revolution. Historian Mark Steele points out that revolution requires more than spontaneous revolt against the elite. It depends upon the existence of a section of society whose interests would be best served not just by a change of ruler or of a few laws, but by a new set of ethics governing every aspect of society from top to bottom. Thus, the French Revolution has a number of causes, rather than one mere flashpoint. The first cause is found within the ineptitude of what is referred to as the ancient regime. I start with this for the simple fact that the number one way to prevent revolutions is to have a system of government which is viewed positively by the majority of the state's people. 
Bhagarat Singh, an Indian revolutionary, revealed that it is beyond the power of any man to make a revolution. Neither can it be brought about on any appointed date. It is brought about by special environments, social and economic. Despite this truth, the rulers of France did their darndest to foment the conditions that precede a populous uprising. Louis XVI was the monarch of France at the time of the revolt. He had big shoes to fill. This iteration of King Louis was the great-grandson of Louis the Sun King, the man who brought absolutism to the forefront of France. His father was Louis XV, or Louis the Beloved. Louis XIV had firmly believed in the divine right of kings, the belief that he had been chosen by God to rule on earth. He took it slightly further by suggesting that as the sun king, the entirety of his people's lives revolved around himself. His heir, Louis the Beloved, took over at the age of five and inherited a system that had been set up for him to succeed. His grandfather had firmly established the rule of Catholicism within France and instilled the belief that God blessed the crown first and foremost. But this Louis had neither the same work ethic nor the fortitude necessary to maintain the Sun King's brilliant example. The divine right of kings wasn't only a philosophy for the aristocracy. The poor on earth, whom Christianity's doctrine and holy texts regularly refer to as God's chosen people, were forced to live within a confining caste system which ensured that they were not equal within the eyes of the law. Mark Steele points out that all rivers belong to the king and thus only the king could grant a fishing license. Likewise, all of the roads were also owned by the state and thus were referred to as the king's roads. As part of their feudal contract, peasants were forced to spend one day a week building and maintaining local roads. Four of their days were spent working in the Lord's fields before then turning to their own crop. Even there, however, the aristocrats experienced privilege as the nobility were given the right to harvest the grape crops one day before the peasants, ensuring that their product would be the first to market. They could also own pigeons and were allowed to hunt anywhere, even within a peasant's fields. This truly was an insult to the common folk as they were threatened with the penalty of death if they so much as killed a rabbit that was harassing their crops. All of this was by design, as Cardinal Richelieu wrote that if people are too well off, they happen to become unmanageable. Keeping them busy was key to this management strategy, a strategy that was designed in part to exhaust them to the point where resistance became futile. After an average working day of 16 hours, many peasants were forced to stay awake at night, swishing a stick against a pond to keep frogs away, 
so that their croaking wouldn't keep the landlords awake. Louis XVI's reign was filled with shining examples of the Sun King's hubris or intense pride. Greek mythology provides Icarus as the classic example of the inevitable end result of hubris as he flies too close to the sun and burns up. The story is meant to be tragic and to persuade others to avoid his fate by not seeking to rise too far above their station. But history is littered with individuals who have failed to heed the warning. After all, it must be difficult to not seek to at least live up to the standard that was set by your predecessor. Louis XV may have looked at it in the same way that Chuck Palahniuk, author of Fight Club, saw the quest for hubris. He writes, Yes, Icarus fell to earth after flying too close to the sun. But what a glorious fall it must have been almost worth the flaming wings tied to his arms, waving helplessly in a shower of fire. The 15th's reign lasted for 59 years, second only to his predecessor, and it was filled with wars of expansion that sought to directly emulate the Sun King. He married a princess of Poland, which roped the French into the five-year conflict known as the War of the Polish Succession. He was also caught meddling in the eight-year War of the Austrian Succession, as well as the Seven Years' War and the French and Indian War. The combined conflicts resulted in France losing nearly all of its colonial possessions to rival England. As the nation-state's finances dried up, Louis consoled himself in the adoration of his mistresses, of which there were quite a few. With a total of at least 57 extramarital lovers, Louis earned his nickname of Louis the Beloved. Proving that he was a man of the people, only six of the 57 mistresses were born to nobility. Like his predecessor, Louis's vanity proved to be part of his undoing. His final mistress, Jeanne Duberry, grew up in a religious convent before becoming a prostitute who was pimped out to the aristocracy by a wealthy casino owner. In order to implant her within the king's court, Jeanne's pimp created an elaborate backstory that involved a fake marriage to his brother. Thus, her supposed lack of availability increased the king's desire to add her to his cabinet of curiosities. She became the lover of Louis and exerted considerable influence over the court. The king was smitten by his newest lover, even ordering a spectacular diamond necklace for Duberry one that cost two million livres, the equivalent of $21 million today. The necklace was never delivered, however, as Louis the Beloved died of smallpox before the extravagant gift was handed over. It was later offered for sale to Marie Antoinette, 
and was blamed as a partial cause of the revolution. We'll come back to that story. As absurd as it may be to have a former prostitute as the mistress of the king or in purchasing a $21 million necklace for said mistress on credit while your kingdom is going bankrupt, Dubarry wasn't the craziest story involving Louis's mistresses. That honor belongs to the Damali sisters. Louise de Mali was the daughter of the queen's lady-in-waiting. Like most eligible ladies in the beloved's court, she soon became an unofficial lover to the king. Seeking influence, she was pushed out of the bedroom and into the boardroom of the French court by the arrival of her ambitious little sister, Pauline. Her arrival at court dimmed the star of her elder sister. Pauline died during childbirth with an illegitimate Louis, and the king consoled himself at the loss of his beloved by taking Pauline's younger sister, Marie Anne, as his next lover. This third sister had a list of demands for the king. First, Louise, the eldest of the kin, had to be sent to live out the rest of her days in a convent. Secondly, Marie had to be elevated to the status of a duchess. And third, showing that this family truly didn't learn from the past, she demanded that her younger sister be allowed to come visit her at court. It wasn't long before rumors arose which claimed that the two remaining Damali sisters were entertaining the king together. The inclusion of this story isn't merely for smut purposes, as the public nature of such a scandalous affair worked to erode the moral authority of the crown, a key ingredient needed in the formulation of an uprising. In other words, it chopped off one of the pedestal legs upon which the crown rested. Simultaneously, the monarch's authority that was derived from fiscal stability dissipated from beneath Louis's feet. Steele reveals that peasants must have felt their main role in life was to be taxed. Around one-tenth of their produce was handed to the church. The French income tax was solely reserved for commoners. Nobility were also exempt from most property taxes. The poor reserved a special place in their hearts for the gabrel, or salt tax. Salt was essential to preserve food, but the king's tax priced salt beyond the purchasing power of the poor. As they were forced to turn to illegal sources for their salt needs, the king created a special police force specifically designed to catch those who participated within the illegal trade. Steele provides us a description of the Gabel officers, revealing that if they enter a house, they do so, not as honest men, but as a band of robbers armed with sabers, hunting knives, and steel-tipped sticks. We leave you to judge what happens if a gang like this comes into a house where the woman is pregnant. 
often it ends with the death of the fruit of her womb. To his credit, the king attempted to reform the tax base, but was met with fierce resistance from Parliament who felt emboldened by the mounting military losses and the beloved's growing scandals. Louis XV died of smallpox in 1774, having set the stage for the French Revolution. The lead performer would be his grandson, the 19-year-old Louis XVI. He came to power lacking the confidence necessary to lead a nation that was deeply in debt and resentful of the increasing power and influence of what was viewed as an increasingly despotic monarchy. The second cause of the French Revolution originated in the Enlightenment, a philosophical revolution that dominated European politics during the 18th century. The Enlightenment movement rejected traditional social, religious, and political ideas, presenting instead ideas founded on the basis of rationalism, a belief that humans rather than God were the ones in the best position to improve life on Earth. Its focus on reason, scientific inquiry, and individual freedoms resulted in key notions that set the wheels of revolution into motion. Deism was one of the most important concepts that merged out of the Enlightenment. This religious philosophy emphasized the use of reason and rejected traditional religious doctrine. Rather than God purposefully placing the king within the queen's womb, enlightened thought held that God endowed humans with a rationality that allowed the citizens to determine who their ruler would be. It wasn't that they didn't believe in God. Rather, Deus held that God is a distant, non-interventionalist being. If you think that such a thought is too simplistic to cause a revolution, I will point to Einstein's belief that genius is making complex ideas simple, not making simple ideas complex. This simple idea of God as an uninterested clockmaker created complexity within the world. If God was distant and uninvolved, then it stood to reason that his will, which had served as the basis of the divine right of the nobility to rule, may have changed since the last time he checked in with his creation. This gave birth to the Enlightenment concept of natural rights as they could no longer trust that the figure on the throne knew any better than the local crazy man that preached from the city center. Again, this didn't mean that rights didn't exist prior to this point in history. It just changed how they pinned down the permanence of our rights. This group of philosophers posited that people's rights ought to be based on natural laws ones that the state should be unable to mess with. Birthing an idea into the world is one thing, getting a crowd to believe it is another. Historian Yuval Noah Harari's seminal work, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, reduces all societal constructs to what he refers to as fictitious lies. 
Harari spends a large amount of time speaking on our species' unique ability to create fiction. We happen to be so good at it that we regularly fall for our own propaganda, particularly when it is fictitious in nature. Nationalist myths, nearly all of which are concocted, presented our species with the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. The historian points out that because of myths, two Catholics who have never met can nevertheless go together on crusade or pool funds to build a hospital because they both believe that God was incarnate in human flesh. States are rooted in common nationalist myths. Two Serbs who have never met might risk their lives to save one another because both believe in the existence of the Serbian nation, the Serbian homeland, and the Serbian flag. Yet there was a time on this planet where none of those things existed. Harari applies this directly to our subject at hand, pointing out that under the right circumstances, myths can change rapidly. In 1789, the French population switched almost overnight from believing in the myth of the divine right of kings to believing in the myth of the sovereignty of the people. Although their parents raised them to respect the power of the throne, Frenchmen in this era were convinced that the French line, which hearkened all the way back to Charlemagne, had unjustifiably usurped rights that were inherent to life. They were so sure of their discovery that they identified these natural rights by name, liberty, equality, and fraternity. These ideas were immediately embraced by the members of the French Third Estate, its most common of citizens. The ordinariness of the Third Estate was made abundantly clear to the French citizens. In pre-revolutionary France, the population was divided into three estates. The first estate made up of the clergy, the second estate made up of the nobility, and the third estate, which consisted of everyone else. The third estate was by far the largest and most diverse of the three, but it was also the most disadvantaged. They were subjected to high taxes and were denied representation in the government. They were also excluded from many of the traditional privileges enjoyed by the clergy and the nobility, such as exemption from taxes and legal immunity. Keep in mind that this third estate wasn't just the peasants who were forced to swish away the nightly frog menace. Among the third estate were counted lawyers, doctors, and soldiers, men who had led others in battle. The privilege enjoyed by the other two estates bred discontent among the disenfranchised and disillusioned majority. They felt that the traditional social and political structures of the monarchy were outdated and unjust and they began to call for a more democratic government that would guarantee the rights and freedoms of all citizens. Deism broke down the excuse that God had predetermined their place in society. 
they no longer had to play the role that he intended for them. The ideas captivated the people, probably in part because they had nothing better to do. Social life in pre-revolutionary France revolved around the salons. Ironically, the unlocking of natural rights would emerge from patriarchal oppression. Women in France were expressly forbidden from discussing ideas in formal settings. In general, women were expected to be quiet and demure in public. Some specific topics that women were often forbidden from discussing in public included their own political opinions, issues related to the rights of women, and critiques of the social and political order of the time. Even when they found something that they could talk about, they were often criticized for speaking in a loud or assertive manner. The solution was found in salon parties during which wealthy women of the third estate would open up a room of their house to have intellectual discussions. Since it was within their own house, they were, quote-unquote, granted the right to speak on the issues of the day. Prior to this point, men and women rarely gathered to talk about societal issues, or any issue at all for that matter. Within this setting, the third estate was provided with a platform to discuss ideas without fear of persecution. Thus, the French Revolution was a turning point for women's rights, as it challenged these traditional norms and laid the groundwork for greater freedom and equality for women. Salon culture became so pronounced that one upmanship regularly occurred with each wealthy family trying to claim the title of the most progressive party. Celebrities of the day were brought in, including American founding fathers Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. Rather than sitting around and discussing the latest fashion trends for the hundredth time, these pre-revolutionaries worked within the salons to operate a decentralized education system which created a climate of change and revolution that ultimately led to the overthrow of the monarchy and the establishment of a democratic government. Within these sessions, the Declaration of Independence was carefully examined and applied to their own situation. Montesquieu came and lectured on the importance of separation of church and state. Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau were known to attend Madame du Dauphin's weekly salons. Soon the trend went upward, with members of the first and second estates jumping at the opportunities to host their own salon gatherings. Charles Maurice Talleyrand Perigold was a French bishop and diplomat who attempted to use the discussions to influence church policy. Incredibly, Madame de Pompadour, who at the time was the chief mistress of King Louis XV, hosted salons at her private residence. Thus, the revolutionary ideas that brought down the king came from within the system.
women formed the backbone of an unofficial network of political alliances. Their ideas were revolutionary and they did the best that they could to live up to them. Thus, equality became more than just a convenient slogan, as the salons became a place where men and women of all economic classes could wax poetically on the dire news of the day. Ideas alone, however, are not enough to inspire a revolution. Che Guevara may have said it best when he declared that the revolution is not an apple that falls when it is ripe. You have to make it fall. The third cause of the French Revolution were food shortages. Pre-revolutionary France experienced widespread food outages for several reasons. The first of which was population growth. The populace of France had grown rapidly in the 18th century. And when I say rapidly, I mean it as the population grew by roughly 50% from 19.7 million in 1700 to 29 million in 1800. There were several factors at work, including an improvement in living conditions, public health advancements which lowered the rate of infant mortality, as well as improvements in food production, which led to a decrease in famine and malnutrition. That last part might seem counterintuitive. After all, how could improvements in food production increase food shortages? The answer is found in the philosophical idea of the tragedy of the commons. Although you have to purchase it independently, food is considered to be a common resource. As in, I don't do anything useful to produce food, but still benefit from those who do. The tragedy of the commons teaches that individuals acting independently and rationally according to each one's self-interest will use more than their fair share of a common resource, depleting or degrading it. This is because each individual has an incentive to use as much of the resource as possible since they will not bear the full cost of the depletion. An all-you-can-eat buffet is the perfect example, as individuals are incentivized to continue eating well past the point of being full, as the additional food won't cost you a thing, although your waistline might disagree with me. Meanwhile, during the previous years of the pandemic, the United States experienced a massive shortage of toilet paper at the beginning as individuals were hoarding toilet paper supplies that would last for years, not thinking at all about the effect that the depletion of the resource would have for others. Improvements in agriculture meant that food was easier to access. It is the children that suffer the most when food is scarce. They are the most vulnerable and have the highest nutritional needs. Sadly, during periods of famine, adults prioritize their own needs over their children. For if they fail to continue to produce, then the entire family starves. Malnutrition can also cause stunted growth, 
poor cognitive development, and a weakened immune system. The combination of all of this meant that an increase in food production combined with medical breakthroughs resulted in more children reaching adulthood. Catholic policy at the time ensured that French citizens continued to produce more and more children at a frightening pace. Urban centers experienced growth at this time, which saw the rise of a new middle class and an increase in economic opportunities through migration and mobility. But this urban proletariat became net drags on a nation's food system. Tragically, like me, they ate despite not being involved in the production. Within a generation, there were more mouths to feed, but less hands to produce said food. They didn't know it at the time, but the world had entered into a period of global cooling during this time period, an event now known as the Little Ice Age. France was particularly affected by the change in weather patterns as the colder temperatures and increased precipitation that came with it led to a series of poor harvests and crop failures, which in turn led to food shortages and rising food prices. As is always the case when prices rise unexpectedly for an essential good, the lower classes suffer the most. The Little Ice Age had broader effects on France, however, as Europe experienced a simultaneous decline in trade and commerce, which resulted in large-scale unemployment and economic hardship. This further exacerbated the social and economic problems that were already present in France. Widespread hunger causes a cascade of catastrophes, as clever Snickers commercials remind us that we aren't ourselves when we are hungry. While Vladimir Lenin was the first to point out that every single society is just three meals away from chaos. The continuous cycle of food scarcity directly resulted in the riots that brought down the Bastille. The relation is direct, as the New England Complex System Institute published a mathematical correlation between food prices and unrest. Their findings were robust, as every time food prices breached a certain threshold, riots broke out worldwide. Thus, the French Revolution was handed its spark. The fourth cause of the revolution was one of the few certainties in life. Taxes. We've already highlighted the failures of Louis XV, but not all of France's economic problems were his fault. External challenges arose which bankrupted the Bourbon crown. Take, for instance, Louis XVI's first major foray into international politics. France was the lone international supporter of the American Revolution, a revolution that I'm quite thankful for. That war lasted from 1775 to 1783 and gave us one of the greatest crowning achievements in military history 
as George Washington emerged victorious despite losing nearly every single battle that he participated in. In addition to tactical assistance through men such as the Marquis de Lafayette, France provided significant financial and military aid to the American colonies, aid which eventually resulted in its bankruptcy. After all, the troops' weapons and supplies sent to the breakaway colonies weren't free. All costs, however, fell upon the French crown, who saw the war as an opportunity to fully stick it to their rival. In the short term, the American Revolution led to a decline in trade and commerce by disrupting normal travel and communication with its own New World holdings. The decline in economic activities resulted in a significant downturn in tax revenue for the crown. In the long term, the loans that were issued to America were never repaid, as King Louis XVI celebrated their shared victory by ignoring the fact that the Americans had skipped paying interest on the loans as early as 1785 and stopped the payments altogether in 1787. The American Revolution cost the French more than 1.3 billion livres, leaving France in debt by more than 3 million. Debt service quickly ate up a staggering 43% of the entire French budget, which was burdened with one of the most inefficient tax collection systems in the world. Our prior series highlighted some of France's ineptitude in this area by telling how one of the Sun King's tax ministers looted enough from the treasuries to ring his own private Caribbean island with a full battery of cannons. It's true that Louis could have foregone supporting the rebelling Americans. But once he began, he felt that he had to see the mission through. In this, he was a victim of prior success. Like a gambler who doesn't know when to stop, he threw good money chasing the bad. This type of behavior was one which France regularly displayed in the New World. Take, for instance, the story of the world's first speculative stock bubble. Joint stock companies had been forged in response to the astounding financial success of the Age of Discovery. Once individuals began to reap the benefits from their investments, the activity took off. In their overseas adventures, the French initially took care to forge positive economic relationships with the natives but eventually succumbed to the economic pressure of the time to take a large chunk of the new world for themselves. A joint stock company named the Mississippi Company was chartered by France in 1717 to colonize the lower Mississippi Valley. The expedition was intimately involved with the French crown, and the 12-year-old Louis XV made sure that they received all of the financing that they needed. The company did manage to successfully establish New Orleans, but that was about all of the good news that came out of the expedition. Now, you and I both know that there isn't that much in the Mississippi Delta. Rather than fabulous gold, emeralds, or furs, 
This part of the New World was largely made up of swamps. Worse, those swamps were full of alligators. Professor Harari reveals that the company, seeking to maintain its good relations with the Crown, spread fantastical stories regarding the boundless opportunities of this untouched virgin land. Having already heard of the riches obtained by other New World projects, the upper class of France fell for the lies, hook, line, and sinker. The company's shares were initially offered at 500 livres apiece. By year's end, they had skyrocketed to 10,000. The exorbitant price didn't deter the next round of investors, however, as the newly formed stock market had yet to experience a sudden drop. True, many investments didn't pay off, but that had been because the ship had been lost or run aground or befouled by pirates. In this instance, the Mississippi Company had already discovered the metaphorical pot of gold. Like the Egyptian prince requesting aid in your email spam folder, the company just needed your initial down payment in order to unlock untold wealth for everyone. People in Paris began to sell off all of their possessions in order to buy just a single share. Others risked it all by taking out high-interest loans in order to finance their purchase of the company's ever-rising stock. But what goes up must come down. Some investors began to sell off their shares, believing that the stock had peaked. When others saw the price going down, they pulled out quickly in order to avoid the downswing. It was here that the ineptitude of France really came into play. Seeing the collapse of the price and therefore the Mississippi Company, the French government bought up remaining shares in order to temporarily stabilize the price. Harari explains that this put the entire French financial system inside the stock bubble. But not even this financial wizardry could save the company. The royal French financial system never recuperated fully from the blow, and it caused the public to lose faith in the French banking system which in turn made it more difficult for Louis XV to raise credit. The snowball effect was devastating to both the short and long-term outlook for the French economy, as Harari writes that this became one of the chief reasons that the overseas French empire fell into British hands. While the British could borrow money easily and at low interest rates, France had difficulties securing loans. In order to finance the growing debt, the crown was forced to borrow more and more money at higher and higher interest rates, which helps explain why the French helped America out, and secondly, why America's inability to pay them back hurt them so spectacularly. The failures of the ancient regime, the expansion of new philosophical enlightened ideas, 
and changing demographics set the stage for a decades period of political and social upheaval that ultimately led to the end of the Bourbon monarchy and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. Food insecurity during the transition into the Little Ice Age lit the powder keg that resided within the land of the Francs. In its last, best chance to avert catastrophe, the Bourbon monarchy found itself broke and devoid of international allies. When it was all over and done with, the monarchy wouldn't be the revolution's only casualty, as it marked the end of feudalism and brought about the rise of a new social order based upon its liberal principles. The new middle class aided the rise of the lower rungs of society while abolishing slavery. Nationalist fervor swept through the European mainland, setting the stage for the conflicts of the 19th and 20th centuries. In other words, it marked the beginning of a new era in world history. In our next episode, we will look at the political drama that came about largely because of France's economic woes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show's description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.